0: Hacking has become a broad enough term used in so many different contexts with so much accompanying subtext for each of those contexts, that it is generally useful to define what sort of hacking you're talking about when you address it as a topic. Very broadly, hackers, in the most expansive possible meaning of the word, like to bypass limitations within complex systems. Sometimes that means hacking hardware to come up with your own solution to a problem you're facing building your own security system out of bits and pieces from other products, alongside 3D-printed cases and stands and hand-soldered electrical components. Sometimes that means figuring out ways to bypass or find advantage within formal structures and rigid systems. Sometimes it means cracking safes by learning the weaknesses of a particular model, or by honing one's skills at listening for a telltale click associated with a combination lock giving way, or keyhole components being shifted around in a manner that approximates the presence of the proper key. Sometimes, though, and this is the definitional branch that many of us take when we think about hacking and hackers today, Sometimes hackers use knowledge, tools, and cleverness to overcome security features in computers, and that includes software that is isolated to a single machine, but it also means hacking other machines remotely, or gleaning information that's meant to be tucked away, locked up, and kept secret by an individual, government, corporation, or otherwise, in some kind of digital setup. Traditional hacker culture focused more on the challenge of performing such feats than any other reward, and many early hackers adhered to a code that aligned with a generally accepted set of ethical guidelines, many of which oriented around making more information free and open and accessible, breaking down barriers put into place by those in power and used against those not in power, and decentralizing things in such a way that no power structures could be implemented that would, in turn, lock away all the information and all the power in a permanent, impossible-to-overcome manner in the future. Many people who followed this loose code also did so in order to improve the world in some way. They were hacking because it was interesting, but also because they hoped to make things better, maybe by spreading and defending democracy, maybe by protecting the little guy from abusive institutions. But a lot of the biggest names in the hacker space back in the early days were doing it for the thrills and for the ideology, whatever specific flavor of ethics their ideology happened to align with. This, of course, was not always the case hacking for other purposes, to scramble or unscramble some kind of cipher, for instance, during wartime, and in a moment in which having such a cipher would allow you to save lives or take lives, depending on which side you're on. That kind of hacking has been around since computers have been around, and actually even before that. Many fundamental principles of modern classical computers were developed as part of, or descendants of, efforts to cloak or uncloak communications during wartime. Despite that history, though, most hacking, even of the nation-state funded variety, has remained primarily on the espionage side of international power struggle efforts. Governments did what they could to steal information, to confuse their opposition, and to protect their own resources, but such efforts didn't tend to cross over into the physical warfare world not as far as documented declassified history tells us, at least. There are two fairly recent incidents that stand out, however, as deviations from that historical trend. The first was the Stuxnet computer worm, which is thought to have been developed beginning sometime around 2005, but which was first officially detected in the wild in 2010. This worm was unusual because it targeted very specific types of machines and software and did very specific granular things to those targets. Analysis of this worm later revealed it to almost certainly be a cyber weapon cooperatively designed and deployed by the United States and Israeli governments intended for use against Iran. The worm was meant to infect Iranian computers attached to gas centrifuges of the kind used by the Iranian nuclear program, tweaking the settings on these machines in such a way that they would destroy themselves over time. And this was apparently achieved as part of a larger effort called Operation Olympic Games. The second was in early May of 2019, when the Israeli defense forces launched an airstrike against the perpetrators of a cyber attack that had struck Israeli interests. The target was, according to the Israeli military, a group of Hamas-affiliated hackers, and after Israel successfully stopped the attack digitally, they blew up the building from which the attack had originated in real time in the non-digital world. This is notable because it's believed to be the first time that a cyber attack was met with what's called a kinetic attack, an attack in the real world rather than the digital world. And again, in real time, it happened right after the cyber attack. It's been argued that the United States targeting a member of ISIS back in 2015 after the ISIS hacker released information about US service members online should actually be considered the first kinetic response to a cyber attack, but that response took a lot longer to manifest and did not happen in real time, so the Israeli instance is still generally thought to hold the title of the first clear, digital-to-physical tit-for-tat response, at least for the time being. What I'd like to talk about today is a small collection of recently uncovered hacks that could define a new normal for everyone who uses the internet, while also potentially serving as the catalysts for a new posture toward these sorts of attacks by those on the receiving end of them in the future. Are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I'd like to start with today comes from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, Microsoft Attack Blamed on China Morphs into Global Crisis. Based on what's been discovered thus far, what seems to have happened is this. In early January 2021, a security testing firm identified a major flaw in Microsoft's Exchange software, which is software that allows primarily smaller and medium-sized businesses to host their own email services, rather than using a cloud-based option like those offered by Microsoft but also Google and other such internet-focused companies. Throughout the month, other security testers announced they had made their own vulnerability discoveries in that same exchange software, and it's apparently around this time later in the month that Microsoft was first officially alerted about some of these security holes. Behind the scenes, Microsoft started scrambling to plug these holes, and within two months, by March 2nd, they were able to release a security patch that allowed folks who were using the vulnerable software to plug the holes that were leaving them vulnerable to being hacked by anyone who knew about said holes. It was announced that about 30,000 organizations and businesses within the U.S. alone were impacted by this vulnerability and had thus likely been infiltrated. And a security researcher said that the true number, globally, could be in the neighborhood of hundreds of thousands, And the U.S. government then made their own announcement about the seeming scale of this thing, which backed up both the first U.S.-based assertion and the second global assumption. Less than a week later, it was revealed that at least 60,000 victims had been identified up to that point for certain worldwide, with that number expected to keep climbing for the foreseeable future as more research and scanning for backdoors in these systems is conducted and completed. Important to note here is that the original security hole does seem to have been filled by that software patch released by Microsoft. But while the hole was open, a half dozen or more hackers and or hacking groups seem to have found their way inside. And at least one of those groups, a purportedly Chinese government-affiliated group that Microsoft is calling Hafnium, was able to install their own secondary back doors into the systems that they accessed. So it's kind of like Microsoft accidentally built a bunch of doors for their customers that had faulty locks. And a group of criminals figured this out and started to break into all of these buildings through these doors. And Microsoft has now sent all of the customers who had these doors with the faulty locks new doors with new locks that actually work. But in the meantime, while those locks were faulty, The folks who broke in were able to unlock a bunch of windows and dig some holes. They now have other ways of accessing those same systems in the future because of that original vulnerability, even though the original vulnerability has now been fixed. And that's the number that we're looking at here. When we say 60,000 confirmed victims so far, with the true number expected to be in the hundreds of thousands. That's the number of primarily small and medium-sized businesses and organizations, including government organizations worldwide, that had hackers rooting around in their systems long enough to install new, different backdoors. Backdoors that will now need to be found and removed before those systems will be considered safe. That so many different entities are now vulnerable and will perhaps remain so for some time it can take a while to scan for, identify, and remove such backdoors after all, is fairly alarming unto itself. But that this happened on such a scale so quickly is also quite alarming to the security experts who have been warning people about it and what it means. The only way to have moved this fast, according to these experts, is for part of this process, the infiltrating and the installing of all of these new backdoors, is to have automated it. And that means not only are we potentially entering a new era of hacking in terms of the tools available and the sheer amount of important, valuable infrastructure and resources attached to hackable surfaces, we are also maybe seeing the beginning of the automated hacking era, where such surfaces, which is the term Used for vulnerable spots in our software and hardware, are under constant assault by automated systems that are utilizing existing vulnerabilities while also identifying brand new ones, and perhaps even taking advantage of those newly unveiled vulnerabilities in real time. Real time for such systems representing a much more rapid cadence than would be possible for human hackers finding, figuring out, and utilizing the same flaws. Adding fuel to the, uh oh, this might be very bad flames, is the fact that this new, massive, nation-state-linked hack is occurring right on the heels of another similarly scaled hack that utilized another heretofore unrealized or under-addressed vulnerability that left a sprawling mass of businesses and organizations open to attack from a somewhat different direction. Sometime during or around March of 2020, a foreign actor thought to be a hacking group connected to the Russian government began to use credentials from at least three software and security firms, Microsoft, SolarWinds, and VMware, to launch what's called a supply chain attack against a shocking number of global government institutions, including their back systems. In practice, that means these hackers were able to use passwords, login info, and other identifiers typically used by companies that provide software services to these government bodies to infiltrate the systems of those government bodies. And now at least 200 such organizations, including the U.S. Treasury Department, the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, and the U.S. Department of Justice have been breached, their files potentially rifled through, changed, and or stolen, and back doors potentially installed. If we were to continue with that earlier analogy, in this case, the doors that were installed had working locks, but the hackers were able to swipe the keys used by the locksmiths to get inside, And while there, they opened some windows and dug some holes and thus achieved a similar outcome as the perpetrators of that other large scale hack, even though they used a different method to do so. So, again, while those initial access points have now been sealed up, those locks changed, other access points are almost certainly now available to these hackers. And the current challenge is finding those newly installed access points closing them, and figuring out if the hackers caused any damage, changed any files, or otherwise wrought various sorts of havoc while they were inside the first time around, making sure that they're both not tracking private communications and perhaps manipulating those communications, still using these back doors, but also trying to make sure that they can't get back in a second time to conduct this type of hack in the future. This type of hack, like the one based on Microsoft's email software, came from a direction that security experts were not watching as closely as they probably should have been. And it has led to, just like that other hack, literal practical vulnerabilities, but also a larger sense of and concern over digital vulnerability more broadly, which will likely mean a lot more investment in this sort of thing. But also potentially an overcorrection in one direction or another, which could then in the future be exploited by these or similar hacking groups. In response to these hacks, the US government has announced that they will be conducting hacks of their own against those who did the original hacking, alongside government applied sanctions where applicable. These attacks, in other words, are being treated like the non-kinetic attacks that they are, and met with the same in response. Unlike the Hamas-led cyber attacks that were met with Israeli airstrikes that I mentioned in the intro, this is a more equivalent tit-for-tat. This tends to be the norm in responding to such efforts on the international scene, because it aligns with the policy of proportionality which helps avoid military escalation, especially between groups that could cause serious damage, were things to escalate. In this case, we've got the US, China, and Russia as the primary involved adversaries, so there's a lot of potential to over-escalate and maybe accidentally end the world as a consequence. Proportionality, thankfully, typically allows one country to hit the other, the other to hit back, at about the same strength, and in approximately the same way, and both countries can then walk away, feeling like they came out of the scuffle looking pretty good. If either one feels that they were wronged more than they wronged the other, there's a chance that they could escalate to balance the books, and that could spiral out of control in a way that would be tricky to rein in before things got devastatingly out of hand. Proportional responses also lessen the possibility of perhaps accidentally targeting the wrong aggressor. In these sorts of attacks, there are things the victim and outside security experts can look at to figure out who did what. Often, the attackers are not really attempting to hide that they were the attackers very much in the first place, but even if they do, there's still a good chance that the victim can get a decent sense of who is responsible, despite the layer of obfuscation applied by the attacker. But imagine if an attacker did manage to successfully obscure who did what, and they were able to get, for instance, the United States to seek vengeance by attacking someone else entirely. Maybe China launches a cyber attack, makes it look like Russia did it, and the US then bombs a Russian hacking group facility in what they perceive to be revenge. That would be very difficult to come back from. That is super overt and would essentially require that Russia respond in kind according to the rules of international posturing and the maintenance of a veneer of dominance and power. On the other hand, if the U.S. is tricked in this way, but only decides to up some sanctions on known hackers in a particular country and does some of their own hacking, which, like all hacking, cannot be attributed back to them with 100% certainty, that maintains enough of a veil that the Russian government can then look the other way if they choose to do so without losing face. They can choose to not escalate. They can choose to hit back a little bit, but not so much that they invite more sanctions and another attack. And they can do that without losing face because of the shape the revenge strike took. In this way, cyber warfare, these sorts of attacks, are relatively easier to de-escalate than other types of attacks. Because what's happening typically doesn't lead to loss of life. And because what's happening is generally happening in the relative shadows. Some people might notice it, but not the public at large. And that removes posturing for the public's benefit from the collection of concerns that those involved have to keep in mind. On the other hand, because of the shadowiness of this style of conflict, many types of asymmetric warfare become more possible and perhaps even more probable, because the consequences may not seem as severe, and because even relatively small nations and even non-nation groups stand a chance of causing serious, out-of-proportion damage to their larger foes through this type of attack vector. As with some other sorts of asymmetric warfare, those with the most wealth, resources, and infrastructure tend to have the most to lose, and thus make the most appealing targets. Countries with relatively less of their economy and banks and legal system and so on connected to the internet will not be as susceptible to as many types of hacks, and any successful hacking campaign against those with less online infrastructure will do little damage compared to the same attack launched against a highly technology-reliant society. There are also opportunities in this space for shocking, novel types of attack that the enemy both is not expecting and which the world does not generally know how to categorize and thus does not know how to respond to effectively and appropriately. Russia's so-called little green men attack on neighboring Ukraine where they spent months spreading disinformation in the neighboring nation before sending unmarked, supposedly, volunteer troops across the border with heavy artillery, having them aid ethnic Russians living in an economically and strategically significant part of Ukraine in their desire to rise up against the Ukrainian government, Ultimately, claiming the area for Russia, and in turn allowing Russia to quote unquote annex that region without seemingly at least ever having fired a shot or declaring war themselves as a government, this type of attack becomes more thinkable under these types of conditions because there is not a commonly used sequence of international responses to nations deciding to take land from their neighbors in this not technically war way. Russia was able to pull this off, in other words, without much more than a few sanctions and criticisms from their neighbors, even years later, because they knew they were playing in unfamiliar territory, and those who could stand up to them would err toward not escalating things. Because they didn't do anything that could be clearly put into the category of invasion, and it was all publicly deniable and explainable to those who asked, they were able to accomplish the ends of a war without ever going to war. Much of the hacking that is going on right now, the hacking conducted at the scale of nation-states at least, seems to be an effort to accomplish similar things. The idea is to achieve massive espionage and, in some cases, actual warfare-related victories without doing traditional espionage and without going through the typical punishable warfare motions. As a result, we're entering a period in which there's a very good chance most of us, perhaps pretty much all the time, will be more vulnerable in these online spaces than we've ever been. And that's true in the sense of information warfare taking place on social networks, but also in the sense that all the things we're plugged into, all the services that have our information, all the software tracking our behaviors. And all the tools we use day in, day out, they are all now potentially threat surfaces that could someday lead to our bank accounts emptying, our private information being published on the internet, or our secrets, professional or personal, being divulged, or someone threatening to divulge them, or else. Most of us, of course, are not doing weapons research or running multi-billion dollar companies, So we'd be more likely to get caught up in these sorts of attacks as collateral damage, or as one name among millions who have their login information or bank account number doxed on a particular day just because. Just like people unfortunate enough to be caught in areas where soldiers from opposing nations are engaged in physical kinetic conflict, we are all now bystanders in some of these online spaces and the new stance required for this dawning reality could change quite a lot about how we tend to operate in these spaces. New security measures will almost certainly be deployed in time, and new behaviors might be required as well, so that any one of us individuals don't become a door for a future incursion into one or many of the services we use. But that, too, likely won't be sufficient to prevent all such attacks. And this is true of state-against-state hacking and international hacking group against corporation hacking, as seems to have recently been the case, with a hack against a company called Verkata, which makes surveillance equipment used by jails and courts and hospitals and big-name companies like Tesla. This company was hacked by an international hacking group calling itself APT 69420, and a representative from this group said that they did it basically for ethical reasons. Also because it was fun, but primarily because they wanted to show people just how vulnerable we are making ourselves, allowing such surveillance equipment to be installed everywhere, leaving us more open to abuse as we try to protect ourselves from the same. This, again, is one more example of how we are more exposed now than ever, both because we can be tracked through these sorts of systems and because those systems that are already tracking us can be hacked, allowing other people to track us for all kinds of purposes. But it also illustrates that hackers do have a variety of ideologies and purposes themselves, and in some cases at least, some of them are arguably still hanging on to that old-school hacker code, even if adhering to it today looks a little different from how it would have looked a few decades ago. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Our Homes Changed Everything by Ruth Goodman. The crux of this book is actually right there in the title. It works through how the introduction of coal into domestic spaces, how that changed a great many facets of society. And going into this book, I hadn't ever thought about how the nature of coal its unique capabilities in terms of the type of heat that it provides and the amount of energy for the space that it takes up it provides, and the changes that would be necessary to utilize it to its full potential, how all of these things would change the way that we cook things, the way that we flavor things, the types of spaces that we build, the popularity of other materials, the types of decorations that we have, because some deal with the soot that is released by burning coal better than other types of decorations. All of these things changed in a relatively short period of time, with a lot of the initial innovation happening in England, but then rapidly spreading elsewhere, as this innovation was deployed in other countries, primarily first in Europe, but then eventually throughout the rest of the world. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of The Domestic Revolution by Ruth Goodman. You can find out more about me and my work at Colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast, Brain Lenses, at brainlenses.com or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find my daily news-focused newsletter at yesterdaysnewsletter.com. And you can feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright on Facebook and at Colin is my name on most of the other ones. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.